as we think about Christmas, oftentimes children are connected with Christmas. Many of the Christmas movies and stories revolve around children. In fact, one of the central themes that it seems to be many Christmas movies revolve around kids who stop believing in Christmas. And because kids stop believing in Christmas, something bad happens, Santa doesn't show up or something goes wrong. But there's still this central idea, particularly in our tradition, of kids being at the center of Christmas and Christmas maybe being for children. But today I want us to think about Christmas not as for children, but about a child who helps us become children. Because that's kind of at the center of this story is, as we heard in some of the scriptures that were read earlier, that at the center of the Christmas story is a child, the child Jesus. The one prophecy, the one spoken to, referred to by Isaiah. The one that the angel tells to Joseph in a dream that he's going, his wife is going to have a child. The one called Emmanuel, the one called Jesus, the one who will save us. And so we're going to look at this story and think as we come to Christmas about what it means that Jesus came as a child and then also how it relates to us becoming children. But we're going to do it through Paul's letter to the Romans, which we've been studying and looking at for the last several months. And so Paul, one of the early followers of Jesus, wrote a letter to a church in Rome. There was a gathered people in Rome. He had never been there, but he wanted to share with them. They were going through some challenges and trials, so he writes this letter to help them work through these divisions, but also to share with them the central story of what God has done, what we call the gospel the good news, the way that God worked in the world, this gospel of Jesus as the saving king who comes into the world. And so Romans, this letter is all about this. So the first seven chapters kind of go through this process where Paul introduces himself, talks about the gospel, then talks about the human condition, the power of sin and how it relates to sin and death and how we're enslaved to it, how we're encompassed by it, how we worship idols and how it overcomes us. And sin is not simply something we do, but it's a power that affects us. And then he begins to enter into the good news that Jesus comes to rescue us, that God sent Jesus. And that's the power of the gospel, that God brings his power to rescue us from that. Or the word that Paul uses oftentimes is the word he justifies or justification, which is connected to righteousness and justice. And all these ideas and themes come all together and, it, and God justifies us through Jesus but he does it as a gift or the word grace. He gives it to us as a gift to us, this unmerited gift, something that we've done nothing to deserve, something that's given to the undeserving, but given as a grace to us, as a gift to us. And we're called then to respond in faith, to give our allegiance to Jesus. And through that, God changes and transforms us. He justifies us. He declares us innocent, but he also begins this process of transformation. In Romans 5 through 8, then, he begins to paint this picture of what this justification looks like. It's this move from death to life, from slavery to sin to slavery to righteousness. And then starting in chapter 7, begins to paint this other picture of, talks about the flesh and the spirit as these two ways of living, but again with the image of death and of life. And so being a slave to, to sin, to our flesh, and flesh is simply that part of us which isn't following the spirit. And so, if you were here last week, or if you listened to last week's message, we were in Romans 7, and it's kind of this downer of a passage, where you're sitting there and it's talking about this power of sin and the inability to do what we want to do, and where we're slaves to the flesh, in other words, that part of our body that's not in accordance with the Spirit, 
our sinful nature. And so we're beginning to do these things, and so we're kind of getting exhausted. And then finally, Romans 8 kind of appears on the scene as this great message of good news. Romans 8 talks a lot about the Spirit, but it's really about all of God, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit working in us. And we see language of being in the Spirit or in Christ, and the Spirit in us, and Christ in us. And it's all this. And so we're coming to this. And so Romans 8 is just packed with information, packed with all sorts of great ideas and images. And we're certainly not going to be able to do all those. We're going to just look at the first 17 verses today. And then after Christmas and after the new year, we'll pick up the second half. And we may spend a few weeks in that second half of Romans chapter 8, which is just filled with things. But it begins simply with this, where it says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ, who are in Christ Jesus. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And it's this great picture that as we're waiting and we're wondering what's going on, all of a sudden to say, now, listen, people. Listen, church. Listen, beloved. There is now no condemnation. You've been freed from it. You're not under the condemnation of sin. You're not under the power of it. But notice the language that he uses. It's not only now no condemnation, which if you just said that, there's now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. There's just this weight that begins to be lifted from us. Because that's what he's been exploring as he's been talking about the power of sin. And those of us who've lived under that power, we know what that feels like. And when we experience sin and when we do things, there's this condemnation. Sometimes it comes from others. Sometimes it comes from within ourselves. And then Paul says, now, no condemnation. None. But for those who are in Christ Jesus, which we often think of like, well, I asked Jesus into my heart and I believe in Jesus. But it's this almost geography. It's this change in our location that we're no longer in sin as this place, but now where we live, where we dwell, where we have our being is in Christ. And Paul's alluded to this before, like we're baptized with Christ, we die with Christ, we're raised with Christ. And so there's this unique language of this idea of participation and joining with Christ. Paul doesn't ever explain it, he doesn't go into, we, we try and figure out, well, how does that work and what's the ontologically and theologically and how does this, you know, physiological, what, what is all this, what does it mean to be in Christ Jesus? He's saying there's this mysterious way where we are transposed, we are changed we are located now in Christ. So wherever Christ is, wherever Christ is, we're in him. But he goes on then to why there's no condemnation. He says, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. He said, we've been set free. We couldn't escape by ourselves. That's the, that's the point Paul's made. We couldn't break free from those things by ourselves. But it's done by the Spirit. The Spirit gives life. And this is kind of the central message of what happens in Romans 8 here. The Spirit is the one who brings life. The Spirit replaces, in our old life, we had indwelling sin. The sin that was inside of us and sin determined our direction. Sin determined our destiny. It set where we were going, all we were doing. And then Paul says, now we've moved because of what Christ has done. Now the Spirit is living inside of us. And the Spirit is the one that's determining our direction and our destiny. 
It set us on a new course, a new path. And he goes on and he says, for what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh. And so that was what we looked at last week. The law, the rules couldn't change and transform us. The law could tell us what sin was, and then sometimes sin twisted that and made it condemnation. But what the law couldn't do, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering, and He condemned sin in the flesh. In other words, law couldn't transform. It could point out the wrong. The rules alone can't transform us. We all know that. I mean, you can set down all the rules if in a classroom, in a workplace, out on the streets, wherever it is. Do rules transform people? No. He says, but the, what the law was powerless to do, God could do. God wasn't, in other words, God wasn't powerless and God isn't powerless. God can do this. God can transform. And that's where we get this picture that when Jesus comes, He doesn't simply save us from our sins. He forgives us and rescues us, but He begins this work of transformation, of change within us. And how does He do it? It says He sent His Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And this is this picture of Jesus wasn't just pretending, but God in Jesus was truly human. That's the Christmas story. That's what we, as we celebrate all these songs we sing about, about Jesus born in flesh, you know, God with us, Emmanuel. When God speaks to Joseph, when the angel, God speaks to Joseph through this angel and says, he is Emmanuel, God with us. In other words, Mary and Joseph, as they're holding that child in there, that is God. It's not just a picture of God, but it is God himself in the flesh there with us. And so when Paul's saying he did this by sending Jesus in the likeness of sinful flesh, he wasn't just pretending. He wasn't just putting on an act, but it was, was God himself in the flesh. Does this mean now, you might read that and say, wait a minute, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. You might say, well, wait, does that mean Jesus was sinful? No. Paul makes this clear in one of his other letters in 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. And you hear kind of the same language. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So you hear this same theme in the Corinthians. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. Or where Paul says in Romans, what? He condemned sin in the flesh so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, so that we might be transformed. The point is, Jesus didn't misuse his body. Jesus had a human body just like ours. It may not have looked exactly like ours, but he had the same kind of body. But we use our bodies far too often to sin. We use our tongues to speak poorly of other people. We use our minds, we use our eyes we use our actions, our thoughts, our ideas, all these things. We sin in the body. Sin isn't this abstract thing that happens out there. But sin happens where? All of our sin takes place in the context of our body, in the context of our flesh. Except Jesus. He didn't misuse. He had the same kind of body, but he didn't misuse it. And so it says, what he says is, he condemned sin in the flesh so in his body, 
Sin was condemned. It was losing about it. So when Jesus dies on the cross, it's not simply his death, but in some way, sin is condemned on the cross. I was trying to think of a picture of an analogy of it, and I couldn't quite think of it. The only one that even came close to mind was from a fantasy series I read years ago called The Chronicles of Thomas Covenant. And in it, there's these, all these dark creatures, up, but there's these creatures called the ravers, and they were these horrible creatures, these spirit creatures that could possess people and go from thing to thing, but they couldn't be destroyed because they were spirit beings, except in this one case where it possessed a giant, and the giant had this power to keep the spirit from fleeing his body. And then one of the other heroes, you know, the giant says, while I'm holding on to this creature, I want you to kill me. And when he kills the giant, he also destroys the raver. The raver which cannot be destroyed. And so we have this picture of Jesus takes the sin within his own flesh. And then as he dies on the cross, God condemns sin in his body. That sin as this power, not simply as, again, not simply as our own actions, but sin as this power is condemned, that it loses its power, it's destroyed in the body of Jesus. And why? And this is where Paul goes on again. He says, in order that the righteousness, the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. God does all this so that what? So that we, the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us. He does it so that we can do the things we're supposed to do. So we can do the things we were created to do. So we can begin to live. So as Jesus dies on the cross, it's in part so that we can be righteous people. But notice it says, so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, fully met in us. It's something that happens from outside. It's through the power of the Spirit. So a lot of theologians say it simply this way. Jesus became what we are so that we might become what He is. Jesus became what we are so we might become what He is. And so Jesus became human so that we might become like Him. And so there's this picture of transformation for us to do righteousness. And so those are the first four verses of Romans 8. I'm going to kind of move quickly. The next section, verses 5 through 13, is really this contrast between life in the spirit and life in the flesh. We can live life in the flesh, listening to our sinful desires, or we can listen and be guided by the spirit. Life in the flesh can't please God. Life in the spirit can. Life in the flesh leads to death. Life in the spirit leads to life. That's verses 5 through 13. Quick quick reel through there, because I wanted to get to the next part. So verses 14 through 17. Because what we want to see is this spirit does more than just free us from sin and death. I mean, more than as if like, that's not a really good thing. I mean, okay. I mean, to be clear, freedom from sin and death, good. I mean, very good, right? Okay. But he does more than that. I want you to listen. Verse 14, chapter eight, for those who are led by the spirit of God are the children of God. The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. By him we cry, Abba, Father. So Jesus, and through the spirit, makes us his children. 
And we, we hear this language of adoption, and most often in our modern world, when we think of adoption, oftentimes people who are adopted, there's one of two reasons. One is sometimes they, they're not able to have children of their own, and so they adopt children. Sometimes it's a desire to serve and to help out maybe children who won't, you know, who don't have parents, and so they're adopted in the family. In the ancient world, oftentimes the adoption was because the parents didn't have children, but it wasn't like, well, we, we want children of our own. It's because we need somebody to carry on the family name. We need somebody to run the family business. We need to, and so here would, here's what God is, this picture of adoption into the family, and we'll see it a little bit later, is he makes us part of the family, but we become heirs with Christ because God had a son already. The father had a son, Jesus, but he brings us in and makes us co-children with him. And the Bible's had lots of pictures of this family relationship between God and his people. But it continues on and is made especially strong as we see that this is one of the central things that Jesus does, is come to make us his children. I'm going to read two other passages. One is from John chapter 1. In John, Gospel of John writes, he says, Yet to all who did receive him, that's Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. So God sends Jesus and those who believe in him, those who put their faith in him, those who put their allegiance in him. He gives the right to become children of God, just what Paul is saying here. Or in Galatians chapter 4, which another letter from Paul, which sounds a lot like what he writes in Romans here. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. Again, you hear that language of rescued from the law because the law, what? The law couldn't bring life. That we might receive adoption to sonship. And because you are his sons, the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir an heir. And that's one of these significant things is that God has an heir. Jesus, well, what is an heir? What's the, what's the place of an heir? What, what, what's significant about being someone's heir? You receive the benefits, right? Benefits of being the child. So what's the inheritance of being a child of God? Eternal life transformation and change. It's this amazing gift that God gives where he's painting this picture, where we've been painting these pictures all through Romans of this life of sin and death. And then he says, Jesus frees you from that. And not only that, he makes you his children. He brings you into his family and he makes you heirs with Christ, co-heirs with Christ. So everything that Christ receives, you receive. And then we think of Christmas time and if you have siblings, there were probably squabbles in your family at Christmas time over which sibling got the most, right? Some of you had those parents or grandparents who were always very careful, count out all the packages and make sure everybody gets the right amount. But even when everybody got the same number of packages and everything was laid out carefully, somebody would be like, no, nah, they got more than I did. But here's this picture of what God does. And he says he makes us co-heirs with Christ, the one who receives the, the most, the one whom God loves, the one who he says, this is my son whom I love, the one who is 
What is part of his inheritance? Resurrection and new life and power and glory. And he says, you are co-heirs with that. It's all yours. And Paul speaking to a Roman world in which people were at all different social statuses and social levels and economic levels. And so here we come and imagine a slave, someone, a human being who belonged to another one. And Paul writes to him then and says, you are a co-heir with Christ. You are a child of God and everything that Christ has belongs to you now. Someone who had nothing, a woman who had no power in that society. Paul looks and says, you are a co-heir with Christ. Everything that God has given to Jesus now belongs to you. And he says that to each and every one of you sitting here today, that in Christ, everything that God has given to Christ is now your inheritance for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's good news. It's amazing, this amazing gift. Remember this central theme of Paul, this idea of gift, of grace that he gives to us. That it's this picture of grace, of transformation with benefits, new relationships, that we're no longer slaves. And he says that we no longer live in fear. He says, the spirit you received, is verse 14, 15, does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. When we lived in sin, there was this fear. There was the fear of death. There was the fear of uncertainty, the fear of wondering, the fear of belonging, all those fears that drive us. And he says, now in Christ Jesus, you are no longer need to live in fear again. Why? Because if we live in Christ, if our location, our geography, our identity, our worth, our value are all in Christ, there's nothing to fear. I've always liked Dallas Willard's way of putting it. He's saying it's a reminder that the universe is a perfectly safe place to be when you are in Christ. So the world, the universe is a perfectly safe place to be. Because if we are located in Christ, what do we have to fear? And Paul is going to expound on that later in the, in the chapter here, but it's this great picture of no longer living in fear. We don't need to be afraid of God anymore because sometimes we're afraid of God because if you read the first couple of chapters and there's this picture of sin and rebellion against God, depending on the tradition or the stories you heard growing up in, sometimes when we sin, when we do things wrong, it leads us to live in fear of God. Like, oh, did God see that? I hope not, because we're waiting, just like when we're driving down the highway, when I'm driving down the highway, <laughs> driving down the highway, and you see that car parked off in the median there, and there's that fear, was I going too fast? Or, or the fear of like, you realize I was going too fast, sometimes I do, like, is he going to pull out and stop me? And that's sometimes our feeling of what God is like, that God's sitting on his throne with this little sin radar gun. Doop, 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 doop. You're waiting. Oh, got him. And he's going to put on the big flashing lights and pull up beside you and, you know, do something, throw you in jail or, or punish you in some certain way. But here what Paul is saying is, for those in Christ Jesus, there is no fear of God. Why? Because we're located in Christ and Christ is perfectly loved by God and we are forgiven in Jesus Christ. We are changed because back to verse one, there is what now? No, what? Condemnation. No condemnation in, 
those in Christ Jesus. So we don't need to be afraid anymore. We don't need to be afraid of God crushing us because we are now in Christ and there is now no condemnation. And we don't need to be afraid of death. Why? Because we are in Christ and Christ has been raised from the dead. So if you are in Him, you are with Him and you too have been and will be raised from the dead. So what I want us to think about, I'll call you dear children, is that we are no longer condemned sinners, but children and heirs, co-heirs with Christ of God. So what I would invite you to do is consider this week, how does this change you? How does being reminded of that reality, being reminded of that truth change you? How does it help you live to remind yourself that there is now no condemnation? That there is no need to live in fear, that you are a child of God, that you are a co-heir with Christ, that all that Christ has belongs to you, that you are living in Christ and it is a perfectly safe place to be. You are a child of God living by the Spirit. And so may we embrace, may we live into that reality. May we know what Paul reminds us of here, that we are children of God, living by the Spirit, with no condemnation and no fear. Amen.